Well, Phil, did you get a new helmet for that crazy electric scooter that you have? Oh, I, I've got a helmet. Uh, don't worry. It's a fan. It's a fancy one, uh, and it's very aero. It's uh, I, I won't uh, give give them shameless product placement, but uh, it's you know if if you've watched the uh, Tour de France or you're watching the Vuelta España right now, uh, cycling race, you you will see them wearing the same ones in the individual time trial. Well, we were just at a NASCAR race, and uh, one of the things I was paying attention to was the helmets that they wear. And uh, recently, there was an accident in NASCAR. This car literally just spun end on end for about 10 rotations and then hit the dirt. And the guy walked out of it. And I thought, my gosh, helmets have really <laughs> improved over the last couple of years. I'm not sure uh, several years ago they'd be able to walk away from that. Well, and hopefully they're using the same technology in your helmet, Phil, because you're going really fast. You're like probably going too fast. No, I'm actually, it's, it is for, for where I live, which is Santa Barbara, California, it's a fantastic way of getting around town and any place that actually has the infrastructure with a lot of bicycle lanes and, and, um, you know, just good, uh, infrastructure for being able to do this. It's a, it's a much better way for me to be able to get around town, uh, than a car and it's faster less time and less money parking etc so it's uh, it, it it works out all around so you feel saving the planet one scooter at a time So up at the Hermanville Wind Farm in eastern Prince Edward Island, Canada, they're having a big problem with uh, a wind, their wind farm, which is only producing about 10% of the power that it's supposed to. The farm opened up in 2014, and despite having a 15-year warranty, the provincial government is taking charge of repairs due to the wind farm's importance of in achieving uh, their zero net zero carbon emissions. Uh, under that 15-year warranty, Phil... Uh, they have been receiving money in instead of repairs from Nordex. So Nordex is paying them for the lost power, but isn't really able to help them on the, on the turbines themselves. Now, the repairs are estimated to cost about $10 million, and it mostly has to do with main bearings. And they had one turbine that has really has failed main bearings and four others that are close. They're going to start pulling off the whole rotors and go ahead and fixing all that, but the government's going to have to go do that because Nordex is not or cannot uh, fix these wind turbines because they're older Axiona machines. Now, Phil, this can't be the only place this is happening, right? That on an older machine, it's not that old. It's, it's not even 10 years old at this point. Uh, what happens here on these long-term contracts if they're not going to support replacement parts? It's a bit problematic, Alan, because and in Canada, Nordex doesn't have uh, a significant amount of field service um, representatives. Um, in spite of the fact that they may have these these long-term uh, warranty contracts, uh, it's just not a big enough market for them, at least at this point, for them to, to maintain the, the level of staff that would theoretically be required. Uh, so that's kind of one issue. Um, it's interesting because they are getting new sales of turbines in the Canadian market, so hopefully that gives them enough to be able to to come back in um, and potentially help alleviate the problem. But the second aspect of this is 
that because this is an Asiona, uh, you know, three megawatt uh, turbine, it's not in production anymore and getting spare parts could be problematic unless they're going to cannibalize other three megawatt turbines. Um, so it's, this could be a bit of a conundrum. I mean, keep in mind that Asiona also has these turbines deployed in the US, obviously in Spain, uh, Brazil, um, and a handful of other Western European markets, um, sparingly. Um, but this is uh, a, a pretty big challenge to actually even be able to get spare parts. Uh, and frankly, you hear this happening quite a lot these days. Uh, even a, a turbine that is potentially five, six, seven, ten years old, uh, and definitely anything that's older, may or may not have a significant inventory of spare parts anymore. Um, so you're either talking about finding something that can be refurbished or um, manufacturing a new, um, kind of like a new spare, uh, if you will, uh, which can get pricey. So I, I think the only way that this problem gets solved is the expensive way. And the expensive way is what? <laughs> it's expensive way, just keep paying the, paying the operator to for the power losses until... You get sued, or I, mean, I, I don't know where this ends. I, I assume it ends in a lawsuit. Could, but I mean, as long as they're paying the liquidated damages, um, they're you know they're technically within their contractual obligation. The problem is that they don't want just the money. You know, they they need something to produce power up in up in Prince Edward Island. So, uh, as you mentioned, this is a significant portion of their their power consumption up there. So they need something for generation. I mean, cash in their pocket allows them to go buy diesel fuel or something else that, you know, can can power some of the power generation units they have in Prince Edward Island. Um, but they want the wind turbines and they want them to work. Um, so this is a this is kind of a, a an issue that's resulted from companies moving so fast with the introduction of new products and retiring legacy products too quickly. Um, you know, we, we tend to liken the wind energy industry to the automotive industry, but if you'll notice, they don't just make like radical changes year over year. They, they reuse some of the production tooling and, um, you know, to make parts for, for various models that, that keep going for 10, 15, 20, 25 years. Um, specifically because they want to be able to get that leverage in those economies of scale. But we've suffered from this, I'll call it disease in the wind energy market, where everybody thinks that bigger turbines are better and to a point they are, but this is exactly one of those consequences of just moving too quickly through your product portfolio and ignoring your, your legacy products. Because when they get installed, you're installing them for a minimum 20 year operational life sometimes 25 or 30 years. Um, and with the exception of the United States, you don't have a PTC driven reason to repower after, you know, five, 10, 15 years. Um, so you're waiting for 20 or 25 years to repower your asset. Um, once the, the power purchase contract's been exhausted and once the turbine life has been exhausted. Is there a similar issue with turbine manufacturers that are you know, gone out of business as well. You know, there's a lot of, of turbines that are about, you know, 15 or so years old where the manufacturer just doesn't exist anymore. They might have been bought by somebody else, but it's not like 
they continued making two different kinds of turbines after they they bought the second company. Um, and I know when I talk to um, wind farm operators in Australia that are facing this problem, a lot of them are going down the route of trying to get you know third party parts or you know design and um, and test their own parts so yeah. that they can go through and, and maintain these older wind farms and you know in some cases they're they're over twenty years but you know are still fine except for the fact that you cannot get spare parts anymore so I guess you know then you raise the issue of the auto industry. That's another example where you're usually able to get a you know a non OEM replacement part for cheaper. That might not be as good, but I think that that's you know that's also an option for this particular site with the Nordex turbines or anybody that's got a, a wind turbine that's unmaintainable. And I think we have come across a few companies that are working on that. There was somebody who was replacing um, operating systems even um, for for certain turbines where they weren't, you know, supporting it anymore. It'll be interesting to see what happens to the the warranty then though, do, you know, because at the moment they're getting liquidated damages. If they take matters into their own hands and repair their turbines themselves, does that mean, one, they've lost their warranty? I mean, of course, you lose your warranty if you start um, putting different parts in it. Do the liquidated damages stop? It just sounds like a, you know, like, terrible financial deal to actually fix these these wind turbines so i don't know phil if you have any sense of how the contract would look under those circumstances but it is really interesting because like you know when you're signing on for a contract you think oh okay so we've got we've got this 15 year warranty and you know it's backed up by um this liquidated damages clause so everything's fine but you know like think through the actual scenario of where where they are now and what what are the solutions there? It's hard to kind of think that detailed, I think, when you're writing the contract. So when this podcast comes out, the Husum, and I know I'm mispronouncing that. I cannot pronounce that word. It's the German word. But the Husum Win Conference will be going on in Husum, uh, Germany, which it sounds like most of the wind industry is going to be over there. We're not going to be there. Uh, but one of the things that comes out during these big conferences is PES Wind. And I got my latest copy of PES Wind in the mail the other day and was thumbing through it. And there was a really interesting article by the people at 11i. And 11i does CMS measurements of blades by putting accelerometers in the blades and then using, from what I can read, uh, some really powerful software to look at the vibration modes and the flexibility of the blades and then and give us a sense of how well the blades are doing health-wise. Um, and I haven't seen a lot of that being used in the field, particularly here in the States. I have seen it used if they have blades that have known issues where they're trying to detect it quite early. So it's sort of interesting to, 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 to hear some of the details behind the scenes. So Rosemary, how do these accelerometer CMS blade monitoring systems work? And why, from what I can tell, they're not heavily deployed. Why are they not deployed in a lot more places? Oh, are they not heavily deployed? I mean, they're not in every every blade. I've used them a lot in, uh, you know, prototype systems and people are using them a lot where they've got icing systems because you can use it to, you know, detect some stuff to do with blade icing. But, yeah, to explain how they work, it's an, an accelerometer and I, I guess it's similar to the kind of accelerometer that you've got in your, your phone. You know, it can measure uh, movements, I guess, basically accelerations literally um and what they can do from that is they can tell the the frequency you know so um 
the the blade is bending backwards and and forth from different loads and you know every every structural component has a a natural frequency that it, it resonates at and that depends on a lot of things including you know the length the mass the stiffness um so if any of those properties change then the frequency is going to change and so that's basically how they you know they they figure out that something's wrong um and then you know beyond that how they actually go from a change in frequency to saying okay you've got a structural defect or you've got extra mass on your blade um that is i guess in the <laughs> the you know special ip of, of each accelerometer um company it sounds like there's a lot of software behind the scenes to analyze all that because you're, you're getting a bunch of frequency data back essentially right well i mean you as a wind turbine operator you don't see frequency data you know all that it's like kind of like a black box and it out, out pops some information that you know <laughs> tells you oh uh, yeah you've got a, a something's changed and you know this is what this is what we think it is so when i was um using it on um you know in de-icing systems then it's basically looking at uh is it possible that there is an icing situation going on we have detected that it seems like your blade weighs a bit more than it did you know a few (laughs) a few minutes ago and so you can kind of deduce that okay if it you know all of a sudden a blade weighs more than it used to then that is probably from icing if you know if it's around zero degrees and um, yeah, and, and you would otherwise expect icing. So uh, 11, I was saying they only need about three accelerometers in each blade. That doesn't seem like quite enough somehow, but maybe they're, if the software is right, you probably can learn a lot in, in giving the amount of times that it's rotating around doing the same thing. It must be, uh, must be accumulating enough data to do something with it, obviously. Yeah, well, even with a single, when I was using it, it was just a single location. You put a, a sensor on the, the blade web, usually um you know somewhere where you can like f- um close enough to the root of the blade that you're still able to you know have a human go in and, and access it um and then it's you know there's a wire that goes down to through the the blade root and um eventually talks to the turbine controller in in most cases or it can be a standalone system if you don't need to use it for controls purposes um and you know just from one one sensor you can tell a lot, the natural frequency of the blade. But I guess if you're looking for um, structural damage, which you would if you're, you know, you're trying to monitor an individual blade over time and see um, changes that might be about to lead to some sort of failure, then you're going to be relying on the fact that if you've got like a small fracture or something, then it's going to slightly change the stiffness, the flexibility of the blade. And I'm uh, I'm just speculating here because I've never worked on a system that had multiple sensors in it, but I'm assuming that if you have more than one sensor, you're probably going to be better able to tell where where that fault might be located because it's probably not that useful to say somewhere on the blade something has happened, you know, go and just go over the entire blade with a fine-tooth comb from the inside and out um, over the whole length, you know, that's a bit of a needle in a haystack sort of situation. So, yeah, like I said, that's that's me speculating, but I'm assuming that that's what the multiple sensors is about. I'm wondering on offshore turbines, because the blades, all the blades there in the United States are going to be new to the U.S., and we don't have anything that big, Do is it make sense to put this kind of CMS system in, you know, the 11i system to monitor blades? Because what do you know? And the turbines are pretty far away from shore. It's not easy to get to. It seems like you got to have some sort of monitoring system on the blades. We are starting to see more and more um, preventative maintenance type stuff. So, I mean, aside from um, monitoring blades themselves, there's a lot 
a, a whole lot of companies that are looking at any kind of rotating component and checking for, you know, changes in, in vibrations associated with that. Because, you know, if you've got one bearing that's got a flat spot on it, then it's going to, um, you, you know, it's going to vibrate differently than it, it used to. And so th there's a ton of different companies working on that. And also because it's not just the wind industry that, um, you know, needs that kind of uh, monitoring and preventative maintenance. And, you know, like obviously you can save a lot by maintaining a dodgy bearing can, or maybe it's even just, you know, like you've got a, a leak and there's no grease in there anymore or, you know, um, a bit of gravel got in there or, you know, something like that. You, you can imagine, like we were talking before about those um, Nordex turbines that have problems in the main bearing and you've got to remove the whole rotor to replace that. So if you can get in early and prevent that from happening, you can just imagine the um, immense cost that can be saved. So that's a, a really standard um, standard kind of thing. And then with the blade condition monitoring, I mean, that's another thing we've been talking about a lot on the channel, um, on the podcast, is uh, about manufacturers that are having these serial defects with with blade failures um and in some cases we're seeing you know like catastrophic failures where a blade snaps in half um and you know a whole turbine collapses like rare but um if you know that this has happened on occasion with the type of failure that you are expecting in a, a you know a fleet of blades then you can imagine that it's really nice to be sure that a blade is not going to fling itself onto you know some service personnel or bystander by the way uh, to to address one of your other questions alan this the reason that you're not seeing as much of this technology deployed onshore has been largely because of cost and you will see more cms used in offshore not just because as you mentioned they're so far away from shore and, and less accessible to service techs um, to be able to detect issues and, and you know, conduct periodic inspections. Um, but offshore turbines are just more highly sensorized because they can afford to be. Um, you know, you, you're paying, you know, 1.6, 1.7 million a megawatt for an offshore turbine, although not in China, but uh, most of the rest of the world, you're paying that. Um, back in the days of, you know, uh, $700,000 a megawatt for onshore turbines, you weren't really able to afford uh, a CMS if you're an asset owner because it was going to eat into your, your asset profitability. Phil, I wonder if there's two good examples here, more recent examples, that would make sense to put an 11i type system in. One is the Siemens Gamesa with the 5X blades where they have a lot of blades out in service and you know there's going to be an issue. So just insurance-wise, why would you not do something like this just to make sure you, you don't have a, a failure? Because detecting composite issues is really difficult, right? You, you, you may know the BA, I think, what do they say, 30% of the blades have some issues. So you may be part of the 30%, you may be part of the 70% that doesn't have an issue, but the only way to know is to instrument it. And I think the, the second one is, as these turbines get bigger, like you were saying, even onshore, like there's got to be a threshold like in the three, four, five megawatts, where it does make sense to put a an 11i CMS system in. Yes, uh, certainly onshore. Once you once you get like beyond five megawatt, yeah. I, I think the there's kind of two two strategies for offshore. Things are yeah, turbine is expensive to start with, so it's a you know a smaller incremental cost addition to add these you know straight out of the factory. And secondly, a maintenance <coughs> costs a, a lot 
a lot higher. You know, it takes a lot um, more of an effort to get, get a maintenance team out to an offshore turbine. So you're going to be much more likely to see these, you know, straight out of the factory systems installed in offshore turbines. For onshore, I definitely don't think that you're going to uh, going to be paying for, you know, the state-of-the-art system to be installed on every um, turbine unless you've got a specific reason. So, you know, like I mentioned earlier in the case of where you're expecting icing, then that might be one reason why you would have uh, accelerometers in there as an additional ice detection sensor Um, because none of the the ice detection uh, sensors are are very, you know, are, are perfect. So you usually combine multiple systems. And then the other thing would be where you know that you have potentially got a problem and, you know, like in the case that we've talked about on this um, podcast before where, uh, you know, Siemens Gamesa has this blade wrinkle problem and you know the affected fleet. So, you know, okay, my wind farm has this problem, you know, it's got affected blades and you know that in the very worst case, this results in catastrophic blade failure, a blade folds in half and a turbine um, collapses. Um, so you really want to be sure for safety point of view and also, you know, just, um, for public relations as well. It's really, it's a really bad look. Right. Um, and so you want to be really sure that something like that's not going to happen. Um, and this is the sort of issue that I work on a lot with the the work that I do at Pilot Consulting when I go and help, um, wind farm owners that have defects in their, their blades on their wind farms. In most cases, you're trying to keep the turbines operating, right? You don't want to just shut down your turbine for what could be. I mean, it can be a year, right? If you need new blades um, and you don't have a crane on site and they're not making your blade anymore or, you know, they're going flat out making blades for other customers, you know, it's not always easy to get these problems fixed quickly, especially if it's a a whole um, fleet-wide problem. So you're trying to leave the turbines operating, but the customer always wants to know, is it safe to do so? And the manufacturer can never really say for sure. You can only say statistically, you know, we've got 10,000 effective blades and we've had two catastrophic failures, you know, like the odds aren't high, but it's not, it's a non-zero risk. And then that's when you're looking for sensors that you can um, have to give you an early warning because, you know, it's like the main, (laughs) the main um, struggle that I have with the work that I do. Okay. We recommend more frequent monitoring. How frequently? Well, there's like actually no interval where you can say definitely this is safe and you're not going to have a catastrophic failure in between inspection intervals because composite materials by their nature, they, they fail in unpredictable ways. And so you do have to look statistically and you can, you know, say, okay, this is growing at, you know, one millimeter per day or whatever, but that's, that's an average. It's not going to, it's not growing. A, a defect is not growing one millimeter per day. It'll be zero, zero, zero. 10, <laughs> zero, 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 50 broken, you know, that's, that's how it works. So I, I doubt that these systems are very easy to install um, as a retrofit. Like you could put one accelerometer in pretty easy because you just, you know, go into the blade and, and walk in and glue it onto the web and, um, you know, connect up a cable. That's not such a huge deal. But if you've got multiple sensors, then you're probably going to need to have a, a rope access team cut into the blade and um, stick them on and have wireless um, communication. So Robots. You still, I mean, there's a lot of stuff inside a blade. And when you get down to the, the tip part of the blade, there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of space even for a robot. Um, yeah. So I, I think y- you do usually end up cutting in when you want to put stuff in the blade um, that's, you know, towards the, the tip. And in that case, yeah, it's not not probably going to be the the easiest 
most cost-effective thing, but it might be cheaper than keeping a turbine shut for a year. You know, Rosemary, I, I get the PES wind in the mail, and there's a ton of information in, in this issue, uh, and, and everybody who's over in Germany ought to pick up a copy because I've only read through about a quarter of it, and it's there's a lot of good articles in this magazine. I, I think if you're in the industry and you want to know what's happening around the world in terms of wind energy, you got to get a free PES wind magazine. Just go online. It's PESwind.com. It's free. Lightning is an act of God, but lightning damage is not. Actually, it's very predictable and very preventable. Strike Tape is a lightning protection system upgrade for wind turbines made by WeatherGuard. It dramatically improves the effectiveness of the factory LPS so you can stop worrying about lightning damage. Visit weatherguardwind.com to learn more, read a case study, and schedule a call today. The U.S. Energy Department Loan Programs Office is offering a conditional commitment for about $400 million in a loan guarantee to a battery manufacturer near Pittsburgh, of all places, EOS Energy Enterprises, and with the aim of expanding uh, the, a battery factory to large-scale energy storage for the U.S. power grid. Uh, if this loan goes through, this commitment will support the construction of up to four production lines in Turtle Creek, PA, to produce zinc bromine battery energy storage systems. And by 2026, uh, the project is expected to produce eight gigawatt hours of storage capacity annually. And when I talked to Rosemary about this initially, she said eight gigawatt hours, that's a lot of energy storage. Well, hopefully it is. Now, there's, they're saying that's equivalent to powering 300,000 typical homes instantly or meeting the annual electricity needs of about 130,000 homes if fully charged and discharged daily. Uh, so it gives you a, a, a rough sense of it. Uh, the project is expected to create 50 union contractor construction jobs and as many as 650 new operations jobs when at full capacity. So flow batteries, which is what this is, right? So uh, they're a different kind of battery than lithium ion, obviously. And there seems to be uh, sort of two com competitive battery systems right now, lithium ion and these different kinds of flow batteries. And Rosemary had recently created a video about uh, uh, this, basically the same kind of flow battery uh, with a company down in Australia. So uh, the Australians obviously are ahead of the Americans, shocker. But Rosemary, does, does this make sense in terms of what Australia knows about uh, this particular kind of flow battery? And is it something that can be deployed on, in a large scale form in the United States to really uh, provide that sort of peak power when needed? Yeah, I think so. So this battery, it's a it's a hybrid flow battery. So in a regular flow battery, um, the way that works is they've got two chemical components dissolved in electro liquid electrolyte, um, and that electrolyte's stored in external tanks, and then it gets pumped through a reaction chamber, and a chemical reaction happens that either basically adds or subtracts electrons. So you know when you're you're, you're charging it then you supply um, electricity and you, you change it into one chemical compound. And then when you want to discharge, you run the reaction backwards and you, you know, get a flow of electrons coming out from that. And um, the key thing about flow batteries is that it's really cheap to increase the storage duration because you can just, like the electrolyte should be really cheap. I mean, there's no point in a, a flow battery if you've got a really expensive electrolyte, but the electrolyte is cheap. It's just in a big plastic tank. And if you want to go from 
a one hour battery to a two hour battery, then you just double the size of your, your tanks. And, you know, you can have 10 times that you can have a, you know, a 10, 10 day battery if you wanted like huge swimming pools of um, electrolyte. Um, so that's the key difference with lithium ion lithium ion battery, the power and the energy are much more closely linked. So, um, if you want to double the storage duration of a lithium ion battery, you don't quite double, but you nearly double the cost. Whereas for a flow battery, it'll be just a small incremental change. This kind of zinc bromine battery is a little bit different to that. It does. It's not purely, um, reactions happening with the electrolytes. So it's, it's the same. Hey, did you ever make a lemon battery in your high school chemistry class and anybody, or maybe any, any listeners? It's basically the same thing. Um, so it, it's like a, a zinc plating machine basically used as a battery. So to charge the battery, electrolytes pumped through two half cells in the battery stack. And in one half cell, zinc ions gain electrons and become metallic zinc, which then it coats the, um, the electrodes. And then in the other half cell, the, the bromide loses an electron and becomes um, complex bromide, which deposits on the other electrode. So the first half of the process uses electricity uh, to power the pumps. And then to get that electricity back, the reaction runs in reverse and electrons are released to provide an electric current. And so you need, because you know, one half of the reaction is plating zinc on the electrode. If you want to double the amount of um, energy stored, you need to double the size of the, or the surface area of those electrodes. So that's how it differs to, uh, you know, a traditional flow battery. Um, yeah. So the consequence of that is that a pure flow battery's energy and power can be completely separated. Um, the longer storage duration just purely comes from larger tanks. And in the zinc bromine battery, energy stored on the zinc plating so you need more surface area on the anodes but that system with the you know the electroplating should end up in a, a more compact system than a pure flow battery and it sounds like the process has been figured out in the flow battery i guess the question is now does it make financial sense to create flow batteries uh, in, in large scale when there's the lithium ion battery is becoming so prevalent and the costs are being driven down and Phil, does, does, does it make sense to do that? Well, like Rosemary said, it depends on the application. If you're looking for something that can provide short-term um, kind of grid smoothing or like low or zero voltage ride-through capability, then, you know, like a lithium ion, you know, co-located on site with either the, the wind farm, the solar farm. Um, or a hybrid project that that might be, or even just connected to your substation, like that might be the ideal thing to do. Um, the flow battery would be better. Uh, the better application of the flow battery would be for, um, you know, using it for kind of time shifting power delivery to the grid for price optimization. So, for instance, you know, you've got a lot of solar production middle of the day, but later in the afternoon when the solar drops and the wind is coming up, you might have a, a time frame where you might otherwise have to throttle, um, you know, fuel to your, your thermal power, um, you know, like your coal or natural gas powered um, turbines. The flow battery would theoretically displace some of that peaker plant type of applications um, although again, it depends on the, the specific type of usage, um, and, and other, 
you know, commercial factors. So those are kind of two aspects of it. The the real question is also the provision for ancillary services. You know, I don't think there's been a clear cut winner um, in terms of a battery technology that would be best applicable for, you know, like a wholesale ancillary services um, slate of capabilities. I think, again, it's kind of application specific. So like if you need extra reactive power for whatever reason, that might tend towards one technology, probably lithium ion would be better suited that or a supercapacitor based, um, you know, short term energy storage capacity might be better suited to that than uh, a flow battery, for instance. Uh, so, you know, different different applications will uh, different applications will have different uh, requirements. So we just haven't seen a lot of flow batteries being used in the United States. I know at uh, American Clean Power down in New Orleans in this spring, there were companies showing flow batteries. There's one behind us in the stand behind us there. Uh, so I just thought that was interesting because there were just lithium-ion batteries everywhere. And the if the flow batteries are a possibility, what I'm wondering, and the same thing for lithium-ions, really, you know, th- th- there is a, a real labor problem in wind which is the, the wind season is when it warms up around April, late March, and then it ends around October, early October, where the repairs are done, all the installations are going on, and then the vast majority of the United States. So the technicians kind of get ramped up in the summer, and, and by wintertime, they're looking for another job. It does, does this make sense from a stability of the grid to have you know, a wind technician in the summertime, they mean doing battery work, in the winter time, and does does flow batteries kind of fit into that from a just just from a, a national security job perspective, making sure the systems run properly? Does is that where flow batteries may come in? Because it's pretty. I, I assume it, listen to Rosemary's or watching Rosemary's YouTube video about it. It doesn't look super complex, but it does need maintenance for sure. The question goes back to what we were talking about before in terms of the the type of of application um a flow battery would you know that's providing like a longer term uh duration and and storage capacity it would necessarily um require more maintenance during kind of off peak times um so in theory, yes, but I don't know if we have enough, uh, like you said, I mean, there hasn't been a significant amount of deployment of these, uh, even like the older, you know, uh, vanadium redox type of batteries um, that were kind of a predecessor technology to um, uh, the zinc bromine. The A lot of these flow batteries that have been deployed were really just prototypes and, and test articles. Um, as opposed to something that's intended to provide a significant amount of time shifting of, um, you know, stored power uh, and deployment to the grid. So it, it, I don't know if we have enough data yet to be able to answer your question conclusively, but in theory, yes. Um, they, would, they would definitely have a different um, type of application than the on-site you know, whether it's, you know, substation specific or, you know, wind turbine or solar installation specific battery storage capacity that would be for short duration grid smoothing type of applications. Um, those, I would assume they would need kind of 
constant periodic maintenance in the same way that uh, that the power generation equipment itself would. It does seem like the loan programs office from the uh, Department of Energy has been really active lately, and uh, you know this this is one of several projects, and uh, listened to several podcasts about that loans program office. So it, it does seem to be playing a significant role in the decision-making process of, of what the technology will be in the United States. Uh, as of, I think the, the data here indicates like there's about 160 applications to the loans program office at the moment, requesting about $139 billion in loans. So pretty much everybody's walking to the door of the, of the program office there is asking for about a billion dollars. I want a billion dollars. Well, Rosemary, you need to put in an application. Well, move to America. We can get you set up with a billion dollars in a factory, it sounds like. Yeah, I don't know what my factory will make. But I just wanted to talk a little bit about this this company that I um I'm I visited when I made my uh, hybrid flow battery videos called Redflow. And the reason why I thought that they were really interesting and worth a, a video is because they've been going since 2010, so you know, way before um everybody started getting excited about flow batteries. Um, so I thought it's interesting. I always like to show in my videos how the technology development cycle goes. And so, you know, they've had systems out and realized there were things wrong and had them come back and fix them and change their design. I can't remember exactly how many iterations they've had, but I feel like it was like about six different um, generations of their technology. Um, and that, so that whole time, you know, since then, they've been uh, managing to, you know, make money with with product sales um, that are different to what we're trying to use flow batteries for now. Like obviously in 2010, you didn't need to do a whole lot of energy arbitrage for, you know, smoothing out the, the duck curve from too much solar power during the middle of the day. Um, and the applications that they have mostly been selling for are like remote telecommunications things. So, you know, in Australia, you have um, very <laughs> dispersed uh, communities, some of them not grid connected. Um, and yes, so you need telecommunications, uh, in those small towns and they have, um, solar power mostly, but of, of course, even though it's nearly always sunny, um, not hundred percent of the time. And so they're using these flow batteries to support that. And so it really suits that kind of, um, usage case in a way that lithium ion really couldn't where you need to charge it up and then it just needs to sit there for, you know, days, weeks, months, um, and then be, you know, ready to come on when you need it. So that's the application that they've been using to, you know, get all that, um, that time, those development cycles. And now that people need energy storage for totally different reasons and, you know, much, much bigger potential market that's that now they're starting to expand into larger and more modular systems. So, yeah, originally they were selling 10 kilowatt hour batteries. Um, and these days it's tens to hundreds of megawatt hours. And I know that there's uh, a two megawatt hour installation in California that they just completed in December last year. And that's kind of like small scale for the new application. It's going to, you know, it's going to get bigger from there. But um, yeah, it's been really interesting to see how, how that's evolve. The technology is the same, but what we need it to do is different. And so, you know, it's changing accordingly. So why wouldn't the U.S. government just buy Redflow and just do the deal and bring them over to the states and start making these things? Because the, the problem is, Rosemary, and, and it, as we discussed beforehand a little bit, anytime everybody, this is an American thing, I'm not going to push this on any other country because I see it in America mostly, which is there's, a, hey, we invented this thing and we're not going to look at the rest of the world and see what they've done. 
and in the meanwhile, uh, you know, the Japanese or the Australians or the Chinese, whoever it is, has has worked out all the little kinks in the process and is way, way ahead of us. And and yet we we try to recreate the wheel a little bit. Does it make sense at this far in the energy transition to stop screwing around and just go, look, we need to find the best company that does this. We need to grab hold of the technology and we're going to bring it to where we're going to bring it to in America in this case and go. So we just stop wasting time. Well, I think, I mean, it's not like Australia is super advanced and, you know, we have gigawatts of um, flow batteries in our electricity grid. So I don't think we're so, so far ahead. No, but you do have a history. We've got a, a long history on a small scale. So that's definitely something. And I do agree that there's a risk, you know, this project that's been announced in the US is eight, eight gigawatt hours. Um, and I don't, I don't know the, the history of the, the company that got that contract, but I I, my understanding is it's not super long. So, you know, I would worry that anytime that you develop a, a new technology, you have, you have issues in your, your prototype and, you know, your um, pilot projects and, you know, all that. So if your pilot project is a few megawatts, that's very different to if it is gigawatts already. So I guess it will depend. There's this huge difficult balance, a lot of places in the energy transition right now where we need to move really fast but um, that kind of goes against your standard good engineering, you know, product development um, process, which would be more cautious. So there's a lot of a lot of tension that happens due to that. I mean, if you get it right, then it's much cheaper to just immediately go large scale. If you get it wrong, it's over. Yeah, it can it can be over, and I would worry that you're going to damage the reputation of of flow batteries or maybe battery energy storage as a whole. Um, yeah, from, you know, billion, billions of dollars being seen to be wasted on this technology. You know, people tend to think, they don't think, oh, this project, we learned a lot from this project that had, you know, issues. People think flow batteries don't work. You know, that's you kind of, you know, everybody doesn't have an engineering education and, and realize that failures are learning opportunities. Um, most people think you should be getting value for money for your pup, you know, your taxpayer money. And that means that your project should work, which is, you know, you can understand why people think that, but it's just that that's not how innovation and um, product development work, unfortunately. Yeah. I, th I think the problem here in the States is that we've had more recent issues in the photovoltaic world, right? With Solyndra, which, uh, again, was, a, I think a billion dollars got poured into that company and solar solar panels, right? They're going to make solar panels in the States, I think in Massachusetts, if I remember correctly. And it went belly up, right? And so the the feeling of a lot of the electorate in the United States is like the federal government's not really good at choosing winners and losers here, particularly in the renewable energy space. And we just don't want another Solyndra. So everybody needs to be super careful about what's going on. And I, that that's why I bring up why not de-risk it as much as you can and and bring in e even if they hired some of the red flow people to come over and gave them a grand time over in uh western pennsylvania and show them and just you know pick their brains that that would be worth doing i think any technology like this it's, which is relatively new you almost have to do that yeah i mean i'm sure that they have this company um was it eos energy enterprises i'm sure that they have the expertise that they need and from the loan program's perspective, uh, I'm assuming and hoping that this won't be the only flow battery company that they um, provide a loan to, that there will be, um, you know, other other companies. And so they diversify that way because I think it is it is a stupid idea for 
um, governments to pick winners. I mean, it's bad enough when they pick winners in terms of technologies because, you know, usually it's um, government isn't full of engineers with a, you know, a whole lot of commercial experience. And so that's bad enough. But, you know, even worse than picking technology winners is when they pick companies within those technologies. So, I mean, I think that the IRA and, you know, the general vibe of the the US government at the moment is basically just go big on everything all at once. And so um, I, I will be really surprised if this is the only long duration storage play they make, or even if it's the only flow battery play that they, they make. I would really hope to see, a, you know, a thriving ecosystem of um, flow battery companies competing with other long duration energy storage and, you know, battle it out and, the, you know, may the best technologies win. Yeah, and that raises a really good point, Rosemary. Phil, the, the venture capital money going into renewable energies right now is low. A, a new technology in particular, you just don't see a lot of, of cash flow that way. And obviously, that's why EOS reached out to the federal government to try to, to get a loan. It is amazing in this transition that the venture capital is on the sidelines here. Yes and no. I, they also have long memories, unfortunately, and they're also harking back to the times of Solyndra and, and frankly, other companies that were significantly VC-backed about 10 or 15 years ago. And it didn't work because they weren't coupling that investment um, in these companies with federal policy uh, that was necessary necessarily facilitating the market environment in which they could thrive. Um, and so I will agree with Rosemary that rather than governments picking winners, specific winners and losers, they need to create an environment in which anybody that wants to participate in the market has the opportunity to participate and thrive in that market. You know, providing subsidies is one way in which a lot of governments have done that. Um, and, you know, while some people may complain about it, it, it works. Um, I mean, the reality is that governments will either upfront subsidize or subsidize through, you know, incremental costs spread out over, you know, the, the lifetime of projects that they invest in or facilitate, um, et cetera. You know, we all as taxpayers, we all pay for this one way or the other. Um, so at the end of the day, it's, you know, just how do you want to see uh, your your money invested and what type of of a return are you prepared to, you know, what type of a risk are you prepared to undertake to see a return? Well, I'm I'm prepared that some of these projects actually get to completion. That's what I'm prepared for, and I just don't know how uh, the administration DOE at the moment is going to accomplish that. Giving out loans helps somewhat, but uh, it's the it's the picking and choosing. I think it gets to be problematic and. You know, maybe they maybe they've chosen wisely here, but it, it does seem like the track record for the DOE, DOE hasn't been great as of the last 10, 15 years. So we'll see how this turns out. But you just hate for technology to get killed because it's a little early and they're betting big. Apex Clean Energy plans to build the Timber Mill Wind Project in sort of northeastern North Carolina. Uh, and Google has signed up. PPA for the entire 189 megawatts of electricity that would be generated by the wind farm. Uh, that electricity is going to support Google's data centers on the grid with, and Google is obviously trying to get to 100% clean energy by 2030. Uh, the Timber Mill Wind Project is uh, about a $350 million initiative with featuring 45 turbines. 
And the, the construction has started. It's going to run through 2024, and they will be using Vestas V150 4.2 megawatt machines, so nice big machines. Approximately 300 workers will be involved in the construction, and it's projected to have about a $33 million economic impact on the area. Uh, this will be the second wind farm in North Carolina. There's not a lot of wind farms, obviously, in North Carolina, but this will be a pretty good size one right here. And so Timbermill Wind Wind Farm in North Carolina by Apex Clean Energy is our Wind Farm of the Week. That's going to do it for this week's Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Thanks for listening. Please give us a five-star rating on your podcast platform and subscribe in the show notes below to Uptime Tech News. Now, Uptime Tech News is full of the articles that we can't get to on the air. So there's a lot of good information that we find and corral and present it to you in Uptime Tech News. So go ahead and go online and just Google it, Uptime Tech News, and you can register for that. And it'll come right to your email inbox. And also check out Rosemary's YouTube channel, Engineering with Rosie. And we'll see you here next week on the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Oh,